Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The New York Studio School offers a range of programs, including the MFA, their certificate program, the marathon program, evening and weekend classes, and a distinguished lecture series that's free and open to the public. The school's internationally recognized marathons are two-week intensive courses designed to build momentum and expand one's creative boundaries. The school welcomes participants for the fall 2019 marathons in drawing and sculpture, which begins September 3rd. Apply online today at nyss.org. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Baron Arts. Baron Arts is a Brooklyn-based designer and builder of the best stretcher frames, art panels, and floater frames in New York and the U.S. They have many styles and options, from standard strainers to mechanical expansion stretchers to fully custom shapes determined by each client. They also stretch the finest canvases and linens to your exact specifications and can even crate and ship your order or your finished paintings anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. Baron Arts has almost 30 years' experience building custom structures for artists like Elizabeth Murray, Sean Scully, Kehinde Wiley, Joan Snyder, Catherine Bernhardt, and thousands of others. I have a show opening next month at Miles McHenry and made a large diptych for it. They had to match perfectly and Baron Arts did the job to perfection. From custom to standard, big projects and small, they remain the most reasonably priced custom shop around, and they take great pride in offering the finest work at affordable prices for the entire artist community. Your artwork should be on the finest structures available, built by Baron Arts. Find out more at baronarts.com. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York that is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. I've been using Golden Paints and Mediums for 20 years, and I swear by it. The pigments, the quality, the usability, is that a word? Anyway, the best stuff out there. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. High Rises and Double Vision, Images of New York, is an exhibition of my own work that will be opening the 5th of September at 525 West 22nd Street at Miles McHenry Gallery, and will be on view through 5th of October 2019. There will be an opening reception on the 5th of September from 5.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Please stop by the opening and check out the show at Miles McHenry Gallery the 5th of September through the 5th of October. Marcus Fisher is a musician and interdisciplinary artist based in Portland, Oregon. His work typically centers around memory, geography, and the manipulation of physical audio recording mediums. Slowly unfolding melodies and warm tape saturated drones have become a trademark of his recordings and live performances. These sounds have found their way into multimedia installations, short films, and even into the award-winning public radio program Radiolab. Marcus has released a number of recordings on the widely respected 12K label including his photographic and sonic collaborations with label founder Taylor Dupree. In 2017, Marcus was an artist-in-residence at the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation Rauschenberg Residency, where he completed Loss, his most recent solo album. Two of his sound works are on view in the 2019 Whitney Biennial, 
which is on view until September 22nd, and he recently performed in the museum as part of the show. I spoke with Marcus from his home studio in Portland, Oregon, about sound, gear, where art and music collide, and much more. Here's our conversation. What kind of mic do you use? Not to like nerd out on tech um, equipment. <laughs> that one, this one is just like a cheap MXL mic. Um, I just loaned my nicer one to a friend um, the other day. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Mostly it's like more like like random dynamic mics and stuff. But nice. Uh, yeah, that one doesn't. You can't put it on a stand. So <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to have a big bulky filter but every time i would travel and go to put it on it would get damaged oh totally this one's metal so it does the trick nice yeah a friend of mine had one of bought one of those like compact neumann mics that came with a filter and the filter broke immediately it was just like (laughs) so you have this like you know super expensive nice quality studio mic but then the filter is like made of plastic and terrible so (laughs) doesn't last at all right what do you do are you a, uh, do you get really into equipment stuff? I imagine like in seeing like your performances and what you're working on, you've got a lot of stuff. Yeah, I have a lot of stuff. I'm I'm like into experimenting with things, but I don't necessarily buy like expensive things. Like it's like I'd rather find things that um, kind of fit the bill and I can, you know, manipulate them in some way so that it... Um, fits my needs more than just getting some like I don't know I feel like I I mean I don't have that much disposable income to spend on equipment so it's like the things that I do buy I try to make them last a long time and so yeah I don't know but it's a dangerous field like you can drop a lot of money really quickly uh, especially now with the internet (laughs) I know yeah I have friends who are like flexing their um interest-free sweetwater um accounts like pretty hard so um yeah and i just like can't go down that road right it's my my son plays guitar now he's Mm -hmm. been playing for a few years so he loves to go to you know in the city we have these great like vintage guitar shops oh my god so dangerous Mm -hmm. i mean i haven't bought a guitar since i think i don't know like 2001 Uh was the last guitar that i got yeah and i said i just can't do i can't be one of those guys who's collecting vintage guitars it's too expensive of a habit but when i go yeah. in those stores and you play i i want to play them oh so God, i try yeah. them out and it's so hard mm-hmm. not to want to buy i think it's the one thing music equipment is the one thing to this day that is still like a draw for me like i yeah. don't really want to buy stuff yeah but, but nice music equipment mm-hmm. you know or vintage stuff and they have really good stuff here in the city. I bet. Yeah, I know. It's like, it's crazy. But I mean, yeah, like I was an idiot and I had like a 70s American made um, Fender guitar that I sold for like nothing. You know, it was like a 1972 right. Fender Bronco or whatever. And it like, so kind of looked like a Mustang, but it was like yeah. maybe the next tier down. And I sold it for pennies like in the <laughs> late 90s. And they're worth thousands now. Yeah, yeah. I know. I've tried to like... Like I've looked, I've actually found the exact guitar that I had because it's still floating around the Northwest and it pops up every now and then. But it's like, you know, twelve to fourteen hundred dollars, and I'm, right. I just can't do it. So, but I actually yeah. bought this guitar last night um, from a guy, um, and it's because of my like ongoing obsession with trying to recapture that um, 
Bronco. It's a oh nice. It's like a '90s Squire <laughs> reissue right. of a Music Master, but it's like it's super cheap. It has one pickup, but right. I think that I'm going to try to route it out um, so that it can fit like the Jazzmaster tremolo. Oh, nice. Um, just because I use that behind the bridge kind of string stuff a lot. Yeah. And this one's just like thing. super basic and lightweight and small. But so. the white is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Is so. that blue Fender that you have? Is that a reissue? That's also a Squire, the one that's hanging on the wall. Yeah. Yep. It's a Squire um, copy. So it's like, <laughs> but I changed the neck. I changed the pickups. Like I did the whole, you know, thing. I probably spent more money than I should have on it, but it works for me. And it was like, you know, $300 or something new. Right. So. Yeah. Well, they're reissuing a bunch of those really nice old Fenders. I know, yeah. And it's real tempting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even like Ibanez nowadays is reissuing guitars, and when you play them, they're pretty good. Yeah, 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 totally. Con- you know, no, considering. I, yeah, those, yeah, the new um, Fender reissue stuff looks really, uh, like, appealing to me, but. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. I mean, I play a 57 Gretsch. Oh, wow, so it, nice. it's got a lot of character and a great sound. Mm-hmm. But it is temperamental. I mean, it's an old guitar, you know. Yeah. And when you pick up a new one, it they play so easily compared mm-hmm. to, you know, they don't have the charm maybe and like the history, right. like that sound of the history of the instrument. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, but the new ones, you're like, oh, wow, the action's perfect on this. And totally. it's really easy to play. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, and so much can be done with swapping out pickups and things that can really change the sound of a guitar. So... But yeah, there's something about like an old instrument and the wood and just everything. Like it just feels like, I mean, even like the, like the edge of the frets, I know you can file them down yourself or whatever, but like picking up an old guitar that where it's like, it's been worn and it's like, everything's kind of smooth. Like you pick up a new guitar and sometimes it feels like you'll cut yourself on. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's of it. dangerously like efficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get into music? Like when was it something really early on in your life? It was like when I was a teenager and I started really getting into um, like more, you know, independent music and punk rock and everything. I started playing music with two friends and we'd all um, just switch instruments. So mm-hmm. I had a bass my friend had a guitar and then we wound up getting uh like a which now is like stupid because we totally trashed it but like a an old like pearl jazz kit Mm -hmm. (laughs) from like a kid whose older brother was on sst records and had it in their garage but like oh my god that that kit is like would have been a really nice vintage kit but we put stickers on it and did everything you know it was just like right yeah I don't destroyed even, it yeah it totally wrecked it like tightened the heads way too much so the shell started to collapse like it was <laughs> you know we just didn't know anything but yeah just playing you know music in in a garage and and um thank god grow up in southern california yeah so like in like just uh, south of la um nice. so the south bay uh, near san pedro and torrance yeah, and this is the era that you're like. What years are we talking as far as like you starting to pick up, you know, instruments and playing with friends? It was like the early '90s. So, yeah. Um, yeah, like it was probably '91, '92. Right. So yeah. So was the local scene there? I'm trying to think of what is going on in the early '90s in SoCal. It's got it was, kind of that rancid. Was rancid kicking yet? Like that kind of stuff? Yeah, that was more like. East Bay, like Northern California, kind of thing. Oh, was but, it? Um, Southern California. There was a great 
club in just outside downtown LA called Jabberjaw. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just a storefront in this primarily Mexican neighborhood, and it was, um, I mean, like, I uh, especially post ghost ship fire and all of that stuff like i'm just i just think about all the nights that i spent there and how we you know were just avoiding death by like the fact that it was <laughs> overcrowded like there was it was a it was a storefront but you had to enter through the backyard so you went down this narrow alley which was like as wide as you know your shoulders between these two buildings and you'd go in through the backyard of the place and the front of the place had a gate that was chained and locked shut Mm -hmm. so it was like if there were to have been a fire or something like everyone would have died like there's like it was like very no no way to get out of there and ultimately it did get shut down by the city um after like numerous times of like cops getting called and everything but it was like a great place like it was like um yeah there was any night of the week there was all different genres of music and it was like wonderful like there'd be an industrial band one night and then there'd be like some lo-fi pop band another night and it would just like you'd get the little slip um at the door that had all the shows listed and like like, oh i guess i'm coming back here five times this week or like something you know (laughs) and you know shows were five bucks and they would give you a little slip of paper that said you're cordially invited to a private party at Jabberjaw. So it was like if they got busted by the cops, they're like, oh, no, this is a private party. We're not, oh, right. you know, no one's paying to get in here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole Try thing to protect was, themselves. Yeah, the whole thing was funny, but it was like they put out a book of photos from that club and, like, people's writings about it and some other stuff a couple years ago, and I got it in the mail, and looking through it, I was like, oh, this is the high school yearbook that I, um, you know, <laughs> like, right, right. like my own high school yearbook, like, f- forget about it, but, like, that one was, like, recaptured all of the, that time, and, like, yeah, it was so Did good. Did you find, was there a picture of you in one oh, of the Oh, yeah, panels? yeah, there's, like, a picture of um, me, like, with my hand, like, on the stage monitor with um, <laughs> the, like, looking up at the, that band, The Makeup, um, oh yeah like playing ian savonia's yep right? yeah, yeah yeah yeah. he's like has his hand like above his head and is like screaming <laughs> in the mic in some really uncomfortable position but like yeah i'll find the, the jabberjaw i only know the jabberjaw from the that dog lyrics oh yeah uh-huh yeah i saw that, that dog play there quite a few times <laughs> yeah they were great yeah and that i remember being into them and you know the rentals and weezer like all that stuff oh totally it yep. seemed like kind of like a scene but i didn't make it out to la until much later mm-hmm. like in a music capacity so it took a long time before you know i kind of yeah. missed that scene i only yeah. kind of know you know lived through the east coast kind of indie scene so mm-hmm. it's much different it's funny how different it can be oh totally yeah those scenes but it's also amazing the cross-pollination that would happen you know it's just like especially in an era before the internet was widely utilized like how the hell people you know booked tours and like there was you know or like got music back and forth like it was it was amazing like i after i left la i moved to olympia washington and there i played music and toured and like we booked national tours just by talking to other people who had booked tours and been like oh yeah oh and like little rock arkansas call this guy or something or like you know and there was just so much (laughs) trust in it too like leaving messages with people's roommates and like you know just hoping you hear back eventually and it was just it's such a funny thing where there was just so much blind trust in it and you would go sleep 
at the people who book the show for you, you'd sleep on their sofa usually. Oh, yeah, 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 if you're lucky. <laughs> right. Is it so, I mean, it was... Floor. It, yeah, <laughs> I, I try not to, to... Because I feel like it makes me seem old if I mm-hmm. wax too poetic on pre-internet stuff. I know. But I yeah. do think about, like, booking shows back then and just you call friends. Yeah. Like friends of friends or... There would be, like, one guy... Like, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. So, when you booked a show in Pittsburgh, you call Manny. There's this guy, Manny, and he would book the Beehive. He would book, you know, uh-huh. like, all these places. And it was just, like, you just find out who the person is in that city. Yeah, and totally. If they like you, mm-hmm. <laughs> they'll yeah. hook you up with a good show. If totally. they don't like you, maybe they'll get you in a coffee shop somewhere. Or, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what pans were you playing with in Olympia? Um, I played in a kind of mostly instrumental math rocky band called um, Nova Scotia and I played in a kind of more noisy new wave-ish hardcore band called the nervous system um, I had like an instrumental duo that played music to a 16 millimeter film um, that was called two boy army and um, I was in a short-lived band with uh, that woman Lois and Carrie Brownstein um, mm-hmm. called Tommy. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just like, I, I played briefly in this band, Witchy Poo, that's like Slim Moon, the founder of Kill Rock Stars. It's been his like yeah. ongoing, rotating cast of characters band. Are you playing um, different instruments in all these bands? Or you- yeah, I played a lot of drums back then. And so it was mostly in a drumming capacity, but then also some like baritone guitar mm-hmm. and like, tape loop stuff and casio and like things so yeah yeah and this is like mid 90 mid to late 90s yeah it was like 95 to 2000 was when yeah. i was there yeah it's a good music time oh yeah that. i mean seeing the, the basement shows that i saw there were like mind-blowing like when i think about it now like i mean just yeah. seeing like unwound play at like any given night in some basement or bikini kill or like all these other you know things or weird shows that calvin johnson would put on and right. yeah it was great i mean it was a really good time then you would yeah. see people like smog you know or yeah you know, oh, totally like, or palace like these enigmatic yeah. like one person playing something. yeah I mean, yeah those, i have those somewhere i have shows. a cassette recording of will oldham playing like an in-store at a record shop where he like um played a couple songs that he wanted and then he just took requests from oh, <laughs> the nice. audience and it was great i like bootlegged it on a little walkman um, and some of the songs, the versions that he played live there are like better than the ones, in my opinion, than that came out on some of the records. But yeah, yeah, I feel like that. I, I'm not to sound old again, but I feel like that can't happen anymore. I don't think it's so. just information's yeah. too fast. Mm-hmm. Do you know, it's almost in the same way that I feel like you can't go to like a thrift store or a secondhand store and find that like gem. Oh yeah. Because everyone mm-hmm. knows what they have now. Mm-hmm. So like if you had an old crappy guitar at a thrift store mm-hmm. and maybe it's like an old Fender Jaguar, they, the people, it was possible back in the day that they just wouldn't know mm-hmm. and you could find this great thing. But nowadays it's like everyone knows what they have. Yeah, I know. And it's like, true. And the same thing with performing. It's like everyone knows who's going to be where, when they're going to be like a month beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know, and th- those sort of intimate shows were really fun. Like we, the band that I was in, we played in a, a show in Chicago in the basement, mm-hmm. and I remember some of the guys from Tortoise came to it, mm-hmm. and we were just kind of all jamming and like, you know, I don't know, it just had this, and it was a tiny loft, you know, yeah. but the kind of communal 
like music playing that used to go on. I guess it probably still happens, I guess, behind closed doors, but yeah, maybe I, just not as much. Yeah, I totally wonder like if I'm just too old to know about the you know the underground stuff now or maybe it doesn't (laughs) exist but i was actually talking to um somebody the other day who was uh it was a different interview and he was asking about the you know the socioeconomic aspect of being in a band and playing music and how now you know it's like like in portland you know the rents have gone up like where it was a place where used to walk around and you'd hear bands playing in in basements and and you know practicing and you just don't hear that as much anymore like it's very yeah. rare and so i was just like oh yeah that you're totally right like to buy, to get a practice space is prohibitively expensive most you know kids can't afford to rent a house with a bunch of friends anymore like it's just too expensive too and like so it's just like that kind of thing like did that start lending itself more to like the you know and that and technology being like making music on laptops and stuff did that really have an effect on the music underground and that you're just you're you're seeing more like solo artists or you know electronic music coming out because that's something that's attainable and that's something that economically people can you know grapple with rather than pushing themselves out of their um, financial means by renting a practice space or right getting into a house with um, a basement or something where you could. Yeah. Remember at the beginning of when you would see people play with laptops or, Mm -hmm. you know, like solo acts and there was that legitimacy argument that came out of like, are they really playing? You know what I mean? Right. Mm -hmm. Because that was the beginning of that stuff. But the thing that I thought, I remember the first time I saw Nobukazu Takamura play. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this guy could go on tour with a computer. Yep. (laughs) And just like, imagine how convenient that is. Like, you don't have to lug all that equipment. But I think, to your point, these days it is so hard, like mm-hmm. financially, that sometimes, you know, make, like a bedroom producer, like making your own stuff in your room is just the only way you can actually afford to make it happen. Yeah. You know, but you, uh, at the same time, there's so many resources now mm-hmm. to make things, you know, in the programs that I see, you know, that my son has on his iPad, or I think about if I had that 20 years ago. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> you know yeah. They have so much capability now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my daughter it, started messing around with GarageBand, and like I haven't even taken a look at GarageBand in years. But I was just like, oh my god, like <laughs> it's like yeah. very capable, you know, and like yeah. and the sound quality is great. And I'm just yeah, I was blown away by it. And they used to put on programs like that in the you know the beta phases of them like these programmed loops or like mm-hmm. really cheesy, awful like presets now it's actually kind of good yeah yeah yeah, like you can actually you know sample good things so it's Mm -hmm. it's not like it has it necessarily has to be this prepackaged you know bad sounding electronic stuff totally you can it's it's pretty dynamic what you can do with it yeah like i was even checking out like some of the world music presets like garage band i was just like oh my god they have all these like instruments that have been like sampled to a like astounding degree of detail and yeah yeah i'm just i was blown away by that but yeah well so how did you transition so you're playing around on the west coast Mm -hmm. in washington and you're playing live music and then how does that change how does that morph is school involved on the the arc of this at all yeah i mean a little bit like i you know i was going to school in olympia and playing music and then started playing more music and making more art and going to school less. And so 
at a certain point I had several tours booked and it just didn't make sense for me to go to school that semester. So I didn't. And, um, and I was also like working for another band. There was a band called Hovercraft that was from Seattle that, um, they played music to a experimental film. And so they brought me on as their projectionist. So I was mm-hmm. going on tour with them and, and projecting and setting up the screen and doing all that. And then I just started getting really burnt out on traveling. And right around that same time, um, I started a relationship who with uh, my now wife. Um, and I just realized I didn't want to travel and being on tour so much. I'd rather like stay home and, you know, be in the relationship and do that whole thing. And we got to talking and she had an interest in graphic design and I had an interest in graphic design. And we decided that we'd move to Portland and uh, go to school for graphic design. So that's what wound up happening. And so the bands that I was playing in disbanded and I moved to Portland and we rented an apartment. And it was like, I mean, just like we were saying, um, you know, I was in an apartment where I had been in a house before and you know, all my drums and amps and everything were just in storage. And I just started, and right around that time, I bought a computer for the first time. And then I, I got into like sampling and uh, more like headphone kind of music. And I had always been making like my own recordings on the side. Like despite playing in these bands, I had like a four track and an eight track and would record, you know, weird loops and then slow them way down and make tapes and sell those tapes on tour. Um, but so once we moved to Portland and I just didn't have a band anymore, I started working more on my own material and that's kind of how that happened. And I've just been plugging away at it ever since. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I listen to your music, I, the reference points that I get, there's some specific people that I think, Oh, Mm. maybe he was interested or would be interested in this, you know, this music, but did the progression of the sonic experiments that you've been doing, did that come out of an organic process of just the materiality of what you're working with? Or was it, you know, kind of in concert with influences that you've had, you know, along the way? Like, I would think, like, people like Nobukasa Takamura or Marcus mm-hmm. Pop or Microstoria or, you know, Rolf Julius. I don't know if you know Rolf Julius, but, no, the, you I know, don't. artists and, and kind of sonic... Mm-hmm. People were playing with like sonic, you know, uh, experimentations. How? What was you know the path that led you to the the solo stuff that you were doing? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was. Um, it, I, I don't think I was trying to follow any specific path. It's just been kind of a slow evolution of the stuff I've been working on, like the four track recordings that I was making in like. 1998 or whatever are totally I mean they're not that many degrees different than the stuff I'm doing now it's just that I have more capability to do more editing so it's um it's always been kind of like these asynchronous uh events you know that that whether it's plucking of a guitar or you know like you know cutting into certain recordings without listening to what was coming before it or all these different things. Like it's, it's all kind of been that same method that I've been using. And I think that the, yeah, the materiality of, of, I mean, the medium and the choice of instrumentation has, has pretty much remained the same also. Like, um, 
I was in a conversation with somebody about music genres and how people just make up music genres. And so I started tagging a bunch of my um, stuff on SoundCloud as minimal grunge. <laughs> Being <laughs> Did it. Did primarily it guitar-based, <laughs> lo-fi um, music from the Pacific Northwest. So, um, right. <laughs> yeah, so I'm still trying to get that one to catch on, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, like it's like that. Like it's I'm taking instruments and you know through various recording processes like i'll capture it and then i manipulate it after the fact whether it's like through tape processes or through spatialization like you know re-recording a source you know a microphone or putting a microphone and a speaker in space you know and, and blurring those um you know making more kind of transient sounds by by spatializing them and yeah. capturing the reverb of a space or something like that. So, right. Yeah. Well, how did the how did the track of you know you because obviously you had an interest in art from mm-hmm. back in the school days. So how has you know the sort of the life of creativity within you moved and navigated through? Is it just opportunity based or like within the art sort of realm versus the live music versus the recorded? music realm i mean yeah i'm i love blurring boundaries mm-hmm. but it is interesting to th- see how you can kind of move within those spaces yeah i feel like um i've never intentionally um tried to fit into one you know specific discipline or one area like it all just feels like it's i treat each one separately but it all feels like it's like a continuation of of a type of artistic practice and I feel like it's maybe partially because you know I'm a of mis- mixed ethnicity you know where my parents are I'm a first generation American so my father's family is all in Switzerland my mom's family is all in the Philippines and I never quite fit felt like I fit in in any kind of space so it's like yeah. if I go you know Switzerland I'm definitely not Swiss if I go to <laughs> the Philippines I'm definitely not Filipino in the United States, like, I've never felt like I'm American. So it's just, like, there's always, I think from growing up, there's always been this sort of, like, foot in multiple worlds thing that's going on. Yeah. And, like, um, so, I don't know, like, that kind of space of being an artist and a musician or being, you know, uh, you know, someone who is a printmaker and does photography or whatever, you know, it's, like, that kind of thing. Like, it, it has always felt normal to me and I, I was having a conversation with um Sam Precop uh last year about how he you know was primarily a painter and then was also making music and he felt a lot of pressure um to be one or the other yeah. and at the time when like Sea and Cake was taking off and like that's that was interesting because I've never felt that kind of pressure but I think that the being maybe him coming from the art world more than the music side. Like it was like, you kind of had to choose. Yeah. And well, and he, cause he went to the art Institute of Chicago, right. Mm-hmm. And then wasn't his, I feel like his father was a involved in the school yeah. and involved in the school. I think, or mm-hmm. I think there was a lineage and, you know, his brother's a painter too. Yeah, so yeah. Uh-huh. it seems like it, it was probably a little more entrenched deeply within his, his path or something. Yeah. You, and then with the Chicago, with that scene, it was mm-hmm. so kind of like, 
you know, it was just kind of like burst out. And it was really, you know, when they were touring together, those mm-hmm. bands, and there was a lot of momentum there. So I'm oh, sure it totally. really felt like the fork in the road, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And it's interesting because I've, I've just never, that was like such a fascinating, um, to hear his experience, that was a fascinating experience to have gone through or to compared mine to his because it's just like, I've just felt like it's more of an organic um, transition. Like, like, yeah, my photography melds well with the music and it winds up being right. like, oh, yeah, I have to make a, I made a record, I need to make a cover, you know, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, and yeah. that was the same when I was doing a lot of printmaking, you know, I was screen printing my own um, covers or covers for other people or making posters and zines and all that stuff. Like it's just always been kind of that DIY kind of thing. And I see it a lot with like, you know, millennials now, now, I mean, as long as we're on the path of making ourselves sound old, um, (laughs) why not? Yeah. Where it's just like, I mean, they've like, they just dive in full on with whatever it is, but they create this identity, and they're like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm an art director and a photographer and a designer and this and that, you know, it's just like this right. funny thing, but it's like this hyper fast thing where just because you can imitate the style, like now you, that is what you do kind of thing. And like, I feel right. like that's a little bit different than like when we were coming up as far as just like paying your dues and putting the time in kind of thing. Like, yeah, no, I totally, I can understand. Like a good mm-hmm. example I think is, you know, I was when I started focusing on artwork and I Mm kind of had to give up music in a way Mm -hmm. because it just, it became a big part of my life to show and work on my work, which is a solo endeavor pretty Mm much. Um, You know, I would get these opportunities where someone would want to use my painting for their record cover or something. Mm -hmm. And it was great. I loved it. It's a good dialogue to keep, you know, in with musicians. But I felt like if someone asked me at that point, I'd be like, oh yeah, they just used my painting for the record cover. Nowadays, younger people would say, oh, I'm a graphic designer too. I've done this design work, you know. (laughs) And I think part of that too is that there's much more of an embracing of, you know, artists being able to to work across different media. And Mm -hmm. it's not this, you know, there used to be the hierarchical, you know, like I only do this, I only work this way. Or, you know, like the purity, quote unquote purity that I think now has been obliterated by you know the way information is now and the way we digest things so in a way i think it's good it can be good if it's um you know not building walls between genres and Mm -hmm. and you you can only do one thing it can be bad in the sense if you're just watered down like oh yeah i do this too i'm an art director yeah or you know and i i make films Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and it's just you know your iphone camera (laughs) studio or something (laughs) but yeah Yeah. i think it's you know I'm I'm all for, you know, working across different media. Mm-hmm. And for me, like animating has been such a great way to collaborate with musicians. Yeah. Because I just don't have time to be in a band. I think it gets to that point, kind of like what you were saying, where you get a little older and touring just seems not appealing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, being in a van with sweaty people for like mm-hmm. two weeks and sleeping on floors. It's like you get to an age where you're like, eh, you know what, I'm not really into that anymore but yeah. um but still being involved in collaborating and doing things where you can still kind of you know uh scratch that itch mm-hmm. so to speak but yeah. with your with you know the opportunities that you've had so you do 2d work with photo and stuff mm-hmm. like that i mean have the opportunities come about based on you know the f- you're working in music or the different avenues or has it been pretty I mean, it seems pretty nice that 
you were able to work in a lot of different areas and a lot of different projects and it just kind of works yeah no it's been i feel so fortunate and undeserving of like many of the opportunities (laughs) that i've um (laughs) been given like i i mean just from yeah i think there's just been the you know purely out of the goodness of of certain people's hearts that they've like seen something in the work that i've done and and presented me with opportunities like it's it's very humbling in a lot of ways like i because i know there's a lot of people that work a hell of a lot harder than i do on so many things like it's not that i don't work hard but it's just like i think because i spread myself fairly thin between all these different endeavors like i kind of i'm like sometimes i wonder if i if i just did this one thing for a year like what would happen kind of like if i if i only worked on music for a year if i only worked on art for a year like what would that look like but i just like I just can't do it. Like I just, I have to jump in at whatever level of enthusiasm that I have. Like sometimes I'm in the heavy photography phase and I don't make any music at all for several months or other times I'm jumping between, you know, different things or yeah, I don't know. But I I feel like, um, I mean, the big one for me was, uh, I think being approached by Taylor Dupree with, 12k um mm-hmm. to make a record for that label like um i was in 2009 i was feeling not particularly creative and so i decided to do uh one creative project a day for a year and document it on this blog blog right yeah and then um which sounds like a funny thing to say now but um <laughs> yeah and uh at the end of that project um Taylor wrote to me, I didn't know that he was following the progress of that. And, you know, he was like, Oh, I'm sad that this is your project is over, but I really enjoyed, you know, following it. It was like part of my morning routine and to like, check it out and make coffee, see what I did done. And so eventually he invited me to make a record for 12 K. And then after that, I feel like it was like opportunity after opportunity started coming and, you know, and, meeting people like Steven Vitiello, who um, was has been instrumental in a lot of opportunities that I've been given, and then getting that Rauschenberg residency, which led yeah. to, you know, this show that I did for PICA, which um, Portland Institute for Contemporary Art, and then that wound up leading to the Whitney stuff. So it's just been like this interesting domino effect, um, which has kind of, yeah, it's opened me up to a, a different different tiers of of um you know art and music and yeah like and just like creative people in general so i was thinking it's a ground floor of like your your work has to be interesting and you have to be really you know engaged in what you're doing and working hard but a lot of those opportunities sometimes are just right place right time totally. you know what i mean or in the context of a moment because mm-hmm. you know when i'm teaching and i tell students you know there's no kind of you know, one way to do it, or mm-hmm. there's no prescriptive, oh, you know, you just move to New York or Los Angeles and you meet mm-hmm. this dealer, or you, you know, you meet a record label or send them your tape, and then the next thing you know, you know, it's it's yeah. always kind of ambiguous and cloudy, and you just have to, if you're, I always say if you're just working and staying in it and, and being engaged in what you're doing, as hard as that can be sometimes when it gets quiet, yeah, that that one opportunity might come up that just, you know, kind of fractalizes into a lot of other things that can pick up steam totally yeah and it's interesting it's like i've kind of just throughout all these years just sort of put my head down and kept working 
and like shared what I've done, but I've like, I've never sent a demo to anybody or I've never like, like really, you know, asked somebody to put me on a show or do something, you know, it's just like, I've just yeah. kind of just kept doing what I do. And that's been really like, it's been amazing to me that, that I've been given as many opportunities as I have just cause I, I don't put myself out there in the same way that I think a lot of people do. Um, yeah, that'll drive the hustlers crazy who are right. like out there. <laughs> yeah, content, content. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I think I th- yeah. to your, you know, you have to. A lot of those people aren't working on the work all the time, and they're spending more time promoting yeah. themselves mm-hmm. than actually creating the work. So yeah. I think it all kind of evens out in the end. Yeah, I mean, in it's one like way or another. Yeah, I don't like I do a lot of stuff, but I don't put out like, I don't put out a solo record every year. I don't like, you know, it's just like, it's, it takes time. And I I feel like that's one of the things like right now with everybody just pushing stuff out the door to try to stay relevant. Like I do feel like the quality suffers from that. And it's just like, people don't take the time to live with something for a while before they put it out in the world. And I think that that's like something that, um, yeah, I mean, maybe that's some part of the difference, like, as far as the way that I wind up um, working than, like, other people working right now. I don't know, but... Um, well, I wonder for younger generations, though, if they even have that long... Because nothing is really designed for a long-term look. Totally. Yeah, no, I <laughs> like mean, it's true. It's like stuff gets buried quick. as quickly as it gets put out there, and, like, that's yeah. one of those things. Like, yeah, I mean, that's, like, when I, when I buy a record or something, like, I want to experience it and listen to it like many many times before i decide like oh i like these three songs but the other ones like are garbage or something i don't know it's just like you listen to something as a whole you take it in and i feel like that's the same with like art like just seeing it on first glance isn't like you you have to live with it a little bit longer and i feel like especially with the ability now for people to make things perfect you know through digital means or whatever yeah. like stuff that's perfect is much less interesting for me to look at because yeah you can look at it at first glance and see pretty much everything that there is to see and it's like all that the you know it's the layer below with like you can tell a human made it or whatever that that winds up getting more interesting for me so yeah definitely yeah. well that's what i think must be exciting about the opportunity that you had recently because like performing at the Whitney is just, you know, I always felt, I always feel that music is so much more direct than, you know, visual art in the sense, because you're just immediately communicating to people. It enters their body and then it's over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's such a direct kind of experience. So that must've been exciting to, given that context of where, especially something like the biennial, which is such of over sort of scrutinized, you know, media, thing you know and the imagery of it often causes such you know people are up in arms about who's chosen or why and Mm -hmm. who the curators are and all that stuff but to be in that context but then create a sort of event like that that just sort of lives in that moment must have been kind of fun to do yeah it was really um i think like doing the two installations that i had that was like it felt like that was all preparation and then after the openings it was like oh it felt like it was over for me even though it just started for everyone else and so right. 
um, that was like a kind of emotional thing to deal with, like coming home after the openings and then just being like, well, now what? But um, (laughs) given the opportunity to come back, you know, midway or or a little past midway through the show and like do those two performances and a workshop, that was great. I mean, it was like, I felt like I got to extend my um, enjoyment of it a little further. And then also I got to show, you know, people the other side of what I do. Because, I mean, that's the thing for a lot of the people coming into like the biennial and seeing the work like it's totally removed from the fact that i am also a performing musician yeah and so um yeah it was interesting because after those pieces or the one piece was selected and then they commissioned the other one they're kind of like oh yeah so you perform too (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, i do do that and i'm just like oh you should talk to so-and-so and like so they hooked me up with um the director of public programs there and and she's the one who invited me to perform so that well was i think like, it's so important right it's it's the the polar opposite side of the spectrum of like mm-hmm. if you think about the stairwell piece that 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 can be so past it's very subtle yeah yeah, yeah you it know is. so it can just you know become like people might not notice that or yeah but then the opposite of that is like here i am in your face you know turning knobs and hitting strings and you can't like you know there's a real kind of directness and and you know you, you can't ignore that anyway. yeah so it's kind of a nice polarity i would think yeah that was it was interesting too to like talk to people after the shows especially the first one of the two shows was for the blind and for um low vision members of the community and you know afterwards people were coming up to me to talk about the performance and they're just like so it's just gone now. Like it's like it existed there, but now it's gone. I'm like, yeah, it's gone. Like, like I think cause I was using a long tape loop um, for those performances and recording material to it. And then, you know, erasing and, and overdubbing and all that. And like, and then when it was over, like the tape was blank and like, the, that was like, they were just so, you know, fascinated by that aspect of it. And like, like, and if tomorrow it's going to be totally different, I'm like, yeah, it's going to be different. And like, that was like, <laughs> it was cool to like take some people who just came because it was, you know, an artist performing, but didn't have any, you know, knowledge of like the background of my work to come and experience that, especially like coming in without vision, you know, and, and like yeah. just, just hearing the sounds and it was all spatialized sound. Like I did like a four channel uh, immersive sound experience and and you know so people were super um just fascinated by you know all everything that was going on even though they couldn't see what i was doing and that was pretty great but that must be amazing though because you know senses are heightened when you don't in in absence Mm -hmm. of other sentences senses so i could imagine that that was just you know a really amazing kind of experience yeah i some people i think it was too loud for them even though i'm not very loud but they like you know, had to leave the room. And I wondered if it was just because like, it was that much more intense than, you know, what they're like w- yeah. with their hearing. And the other thing was there was an amazing storm that was blowing past the window as I was playing. And like, so it was like the people that worked at the museum and then the sighted companions of, of the attendees were freaking out because it was like lightning and, you know, like sideways rain and, the view of new jersey just completely disappeared and then 
the second I finished playing, the clouds just blew past, and you could see straight across the river again. Yeah, the and sky like, was crazy that day. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. was a, like, it was a really amazing kind of progression that yeah, happened it, pretty quickly. It did, yeah. So it was like over the course of just that thirty minutes, it like started yeah. and finished, and yeah. And then I was kind of bummed that it was like I was like, ah, oh, I wish that the public show would have been tonight and instead of tomorrow. But right. then the next night, like the sunset was just incredible so it was like a perfect backdrop for that too yeah we've been having some pretty i mean those summer storms are great Mm -hmm. but um like where i live our apartment we have a pretty nice like big windows view of the sky of the city Mm -hmm. and we've been having some pretty epic sunsets (laughs) the kind of when you're like hanging out with the family and you're like okay everyone turn off all the lights yeah let's stop and go out on the balcony (laughs) and check this out totally which and those windows in that space are amazing. Oh so my it's god, such a great they really are. Backdrop. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy the rest of the show? Does I just put you on the spot, or yeah. did you enjoy the rest of the show? What did you think about the rest of the the biennial? Yeah. I I thought it was great. I mean, it was like the I feel like the way that it was all organized was beautiful too. Like the flow of the space was wonderful, and you know, I mean, I that would be such a difficult job, in my opinion, to like to curate that show and uh, thankless it's thankless i mean yeah like jane and rue did a just an amazing job on it and like you know the caliber of art that it was there was just great and like the the breadth of it too you know there was just like yeah yeah i mean i was so i felt so lucky to be able to spend so many days there um you know before it opened or after it closed and just be able to walk through um you know back in may when it first started and and i was there every day for a week um you know between the different events or or whatever that was happening and yeah it was just so wonderful like i felt like um and then to meet the artist too was was wonderful too because i felt like you know that was just another view into the perspectives that everyone was bringing it was it was really wonderful yeah well i would imagine the exposure of being in that show too will afford you other opportunities to in different venues right i mean yeah we'll see hopefully yeah Yeah. it's such a you know it's it's seen by a lot of people yeah in in that specific context so Mm -hmm. and it's up for a long time too which is funny because a lot of well i mean there are some residencies like have you ever been in a mattress factory i haven't in pittsburgh there's like places like that that'll do these long term Mm -hmm. sort of uh audio installations or like Mm -hmm. sound sort of art pieces but a lot of times it's temporal and it's kind of quick and it can be a footnote you know so having something i think of that you know duration and that many people seeing it is is really great yeah and like i i don't know i've as someone who's really interested in music and art obviously and how they you know co-interact um i think it's really great when there's you know when sound pieces when sound art is shown in a context like that because yeah. it's so often kind of like oh what what's that other thing oh you know like and then just walked by or, or passed by or you know I, I think there's such a great um you know there's such a great opportunity to involve that kind of work especially in big institutions like that so yeah hopefully more of that happens yeah i hope so i mean it feels like sound is very much um in the conversation now where I mean, even a couple of years ago, it was much more rare. And I think yeah. that that's like, it's wonderful because I feel like it's it's one of those things that's just been overlooked. And I mean, I think because it's a difficult thing to put in a box, it makes right. it hard. You know, it's just like, 
what is it? Is it sculpture? Is it mixed media? What is it? You know, it's just like, and I mean, it all depends on how it's presented too. You know, there's ones where it's just the sounds are disembodied from any objects. And then like the, the pieces that I tend to do have, you know, distinct source, you know, where the audio is coming from. Um, but yeah, so maybe that fits into a different box, but it's, yeah, I think that people are starting to think about it more and that's really wonderful for everyone. Definitely. Well, what's on your radar now? Like, what do you have? Do you have a little time or are you constantly working on what you're doing? I'm actually in very, very shortly, I'm leaving to go to Europe. Um, or actually before that I'm performing two nights with Laura Ortman, who's in the biennial, Mm-hmm. Also, but here in Portland for the Time Based Starts Festival, um, nice. we had so we met um, through the openings and really hit it off. And her work is great. And uh, then she came to my show two uh, two weeks ago, but she had invited me to perform with her for the or to collaborate for the festival, and I jumped at the chance because I really enjoy her work. And so I'm doing that in September, and then. Pretty much immediately after that, I'm leaving to go to Iceland to play um, a festival over there, and then to the UK, and I'm doing several shows over in the UK, and then... Iceland. See, so now the new bar for you is like only performing in an amazing landscape. (laughs) You have to have an amazing sky behind you as you're playing. Yeah. (laughs) Because I've I've so many friends who have done residencies. I haven't been. Yeah. But the the images are crazy. Oh yeah. Like I know. it's just I, so I beautiful went, there. No, it's amazing. I mean, you should go as soon as possible because it's changing rapidly. Uh, yeah. As far as the development of the place goes, like I went, um, in I think it was 2014, with um, Taylor Dupree and uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto. And they play. We're playing a festival there, and then Taylor and I stayed for a week and just drove around and to take photos and make recordings. And you know, we were exploring. We just like set out and just start driving one direction for the whole day, yeah. and then um, you know, just these amazing landscapes. We wouldn't see another car for an hour or so, and like it was great. And then I went back in 2018 um, with my family, and. I was astounded by the development in just that short amount of time, you know, like places where I had gone with Taylor that were like, it felt like trespassing. Like you were going down a gravel road, you know, between these like farms. And then you'd come about on this like beautiful beach, you know, that was just like black sand with spires and all of that stuff. But it, it was like, when I went back to those same places now, it was like a paved road, with a, big, <laughs> with a big turnaround for buses for, and then there'd be like a gift shop and a and a oh, cafe and I'm just like what like this is the same place like I, I just couldn't believe it you know and that was like you know three four years oh, that was the, that was the difference and um the words out yeah I mean <laughs> I, I mean tourism is the number one industry and and then driving like just out you know we went out towards uh Yoko Sarlon, that's like it's where the the glaciers break off into icebergs mm-hmm. in the bay. And on the way out there, it's like um I mean you're just driving, 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 and you just see hotels that were under construction like right off the side of the road. Yeah. And like that was like, you know, those sheep and horse pastures and everything, that was it when when I went out there before. So right. yeah, go go soon. <laughs> 
I'm gonna try. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, especially for living on the East Coast, like the it's a pretty short flight. And yeah, there's, yeah, there's it's deals. not far, and you know, like I said, there's so many residencies there. There's so they, yeah. you know, they bring a lot of artists to go do work there. Mm-hmm. I know. I've um, my friend and collaborator Burke Jam. He has been there, and he lived there for a while, and he actually met his now wife at a residency there. Oh, yeah. um, but he just said that there's great ones, and he was talking about one that's in the north, I think on an island in a fjord that's all about darkness. And like, it just like happens during the dark months on this island, and which sounds pretty incredible to me. So yeah, yeah. He, he was encouraging me to look in, into it. It would be, yeah, I'd love to well, go um, there again. Well, how can people, you know, people listening, check out your, what's the best way for them to, like, hear your stuff and see what you're up to? Um, I have a website that I maintain loosely, <laughs> um, but <laughs> I try to keep up to date with tour dates and, and live show stuff there. Um, that's mapmap.ch, M-A-P-M-A-P.ch. And then um, Instagram is probably another good way. Um, and... Yeah, I don't know. There's like I have stuff that's on um, all of the streaming services and that just under my own name. Yeah, Bandcamp, right? Yeah, Bandcamp, SoundCloud. I mean, that's where I've heard a lot of the stuff. So yeah, Apple Music, Music. all of that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I've I need to get more stuff out there soon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, cool. I hope you you play another gig in the city sometime soon and be cool yeah, to, me to too. link up and check it out. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, thanks. It was great talking. Yeah, so nice. Thank you.